first sermon of the day. Now it's time to give a second. Uh, This one will be slightly longer, not too long, not unnecessarily long. If you will, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 25. As most of you know, we um, have been doing a series on 1 Peter entitled Living Hope. Living Hope, that we have a living hope by the blood of the Lamb. And um, over the next uh, several weeks, we're going to be dealing with some, with some topics that I think are incredibly relevant for our time. Um, and thankfully, Peter has navigated some of these things for us, and we can draw upon the wisdom of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to understand these things rightly. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're just going to look at verse, verses 13 through 25. And I will say this too, next time we're together, um, I have an opportunity to preach this passage. I am going to take some time to look at verse 21 through 25. Not so in depth today, but the next time we gather together. Because I think the person and work of Christ, both in his active and passive obedience, is something that we in the church deeply need to pause and look at and apply those to our lives. But today we're just going to look at verse 13 through 20 primarily and touch on verse 21 through 25 by way of application. So hear now the word of the Lord. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? If, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, in his body, sorry, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Law flashes as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your goodness and grace and mercy as seen in the gospel. Father, these are your people. They have come today not so much to hear from me, but to hear from you, to hear the truth of your word, to experience the power that comes from a transformed life, to be encouraged to live wisely, to be encouraged to live in this sinful world and not be pressed down beyond measure. Father, I thank you that as we have gathered here today, our hope is not in this world or our circumstances, but truly we have a living hope that's grounded in Christ and what he has done. And may that sustain us, O Lord. And now, Father, I pray that as we dive into your word and look into it, that we might be nourished and encouraged. Bless us now, your people, in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen and amen. Well, we've hit a very important point in the book of Peter. In fact, some might say the biggest point in the book of Peter. If you've been paying attention, Peter has been talking to us about our identity in Christ. In other words, Peter's been saying, who are you in Jesus Christ? That's an important theme. And Peter develops this over and over again. First of all, Peter says that we are the new Exodus community. What does he mean by that? Peter says, you've been born again. You've been born again. That means your nature has been changed. You're fundamentally different. That means you suffer differently. That means you live in this world differently. You are a completely different person because Peter says you have been born again unto a living hope. Not only that, Peter says that you are a holy nation. Isn't that cool? That you and I are holy, that we've been called out by God to be his precious people, that we've been chosen by God for that. Not only that, it actually gets better. Peter says that we are a new covenant community that has been born again by an incorruptible seed, meaning this, you have the word of God implanted in you. That the blood of Jesus Christ has brought forth a new covenant people secured by his word. That's who you are. But he doesn't stop there. Peter says that you are a temple, a temple of living stones, that each and every one of you inside here today, if you name the name of Christ, have been built on the solid rock, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. You are the new temple. But he goes even further and says that you are a new priesthood, that God has conscripted you into the priesthood of, of, of uh, sorry, his specific priesthood so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't that wonderful? That's who we are. 
us, brothers and sisters. If you name the name of Christ, that's who you are. You've been born again. You're a new temple. You've been saved unto a living hope. You're the new Exodus community. You're the new covenant community. You're a nation of new priests. That's your identity before Christ. And isn't that glorious? Now, Peter tells us that for this reason, because in verse number 13, he tells us how this new identity, how this new community of believers, he tells us how they ought to live in the world. In fact, he goes a step further and he says, we bear witness to this new community. How? Our favorite word in the world, submission. Isn't that a wonderful word? I don't know about you, but I love the word submission. I was fully expecting during our time of testimony, somebody to stand up and say, praise God I get to uh, submit in every area of my life. You know, children, I know you're excited about the submitting to your parents. You go to your parents on a regular basis and you say, Father, Mother, thank you so much for exercising authority over me. <laughs> Appreciate that a great deal. I don't know how I can get by without it. Right? Now, look, I say that in jest, but hands up if you love submission. There are a few of you. A few of you who the Holy Spirit is working through in a mighty way. But can I tell you, I don't like submission. I, I don't. Now, I do it because I know that's what I'm supposed to do, but I don't love it. My heart doesn't gravitate toward it. And if you were to search your heart and your mind, you would know that you don't really like it either. Now, some of you would say, well, Pastor Dennis, I'm a rule follower. Well, can I, can I tell you, rule following is not submission, right? Because you could be a good rule follower and still not be submissive. Because you know the thing that I realized with rule following? You do it because you're the rule follower. That means that you're in control. But that has nothing to do with submission. Remember, the Pharisees were good what? Rule followers. But were they submissive? No, at least not to Jesus. No, we don't like submission. But do you realize submission is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. One commentator said this, there, there is no teaching more unpopular in our day than the teaching on submission. And I 100% agree. There is no teaching more unpopular. We dislike the word submission. Why? Well, I think one of the reasons why is because we live in the spirit of rebellion. There's something cool and edgy about being rebellious, right? We're the rock and roll generation. Words like radical individualism, anarchy, autonomy, these are words that rule the day. Because deep down, we are rebels at heart, just like our first parents. Nothing's really changed. We don't like authority over us. In fact, if we were truly honest, we love when people submit to us 
but we hate to submit to other people. At our core, we are rebellious people. And that's why Peter says from the very beginning that one of the things that distinguishes a Christian is this understanding of submission. Submission. That's what it means. Now, why is that? Because when we submit, we are most Christ-like. That's why. Think, in fact, think of Jesus. You remember in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2, Jesus is in the temple. His parents come to him and they say, where have you been? We've been looking for you this whole time. And Jesus says, don't you all know I must be about my father's business? And they said, all right, all right, all that talk about your father and all that. Put that aside. It's time for us to go back. And the scripture says this, and I think this is one of the most remarkable statements in the New Testament. It says this, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. You know, most of us, if you're a Bible, you know, Bible scholars always ask the question, what was Jesus doing the whole time during when he was growing up to when he became about the age of 30 and his public ministry started? What was he doing? What was he engaging in? We wonder what journeys he took. We wonder, like, did he write anything? What was he studying? Do you know what Jesus was doing that whole time? Being submissive to his parents. Practicing submission. Do you know that Jesus spent more time being submissive than he did doing anything else? That whole time in obscurity. That whole time when nobody knew him. When the crowds weren't around him when nobody even knew he existed. What did he spend that time doing in quiet submission to his parents? You know, I often tell my children, I believe Jesus got a spanking. And they looked at me like, what? Jesus never got a spanking. I said, yes, he did. Not because he was a sinner, but because his parents were sinners. And they constantly misunderstood him and they constantly misjudged his motives. Right? Now, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You've ditched, dished out uh, some corporal punishment unfairly. That happened to Jesus. And it's wild to me that him being the son of God submitted himself to spanking. But he did. For 20 plus years, in fact, for 30 odd years, if you look at the full scope of Jesus' ministry, he submitted himself to his sinful parents. Hear me, beloved, even though we're all a bunch of rebels sitting in here today, at the heart of what it means to be a Christian is to have a heart of submission to one another. That's at the heart of the gospel. And so what I want to do today, and I think what Peter is calling us to do, is to learn how to submit. Now let me say this to start off with. Submission doesn't mean weakness. Was Jesus a weak person? Absolutely not. Being submissive doesn't mean that you are naive. Was Jesus naive? Absolutely not. Jesus was one of the strongest, in fact, the strongest moral human being that ever lived. 
He was the wisest person that ever lived. And yet the Bible said he spent the majority of his years on earth submitting to the authority of his parents. And if something is this core to what it means to be a Christian, for those of us that name the name of Christ, we better take note what it is. And we better understand how we can do it to the glory of God. So, what can we say about the life of submission? What are some of the principles that Peter lays out in the text that we have? Now, there, there's many. There's many, but I only want to point to two. The first is this. We submit as people of God for the Lord's sake. That's what he says in verse number 13. We're going to unpack that in a minute. But secondly, we submit as servants of God. Both of those things govern how we look at the lifestyle of submission. So very first, let's look at our submission for the Lord's sake. Verse number 13, Peter says this, Be subject, which is a command, by the way. This isn't a suggestion, right? Peter says, Be subject to every human authority, whether it's the emperor or supreme, as the governors. In other words, whether it's local officials, whether it's high officials, no matter where the authority lies, Peter says that we ought to submit ourselves to that authority. Why? For the Lord's sake. Now, pay attention to me, please, because this is so important. This exhortation is not given to a group of people who had awesome leadership. If you studied the time that Peter lived in in Rome, they, quite frankly, was probably underneath the authority and leadership of Nero. And Nero was not a choir boy. He was a violent, despotic leader. And so Peter isn't saying this to people who are under awesome leadership. There's nothing wrong. Everything's okay. He's not saying it to those people. He's saying it to people who actually are being oppressed by their government at every single turn. These were people that were being killed for their faith, driven from their land. These were people who had all of their property taken from them. These were people who couldn't go to church on Sunday. These were people who were actually daily being oppressed. And yet, Peter says, be subject to every single authority that's above you. That's pretty radical. That's pretty radical. Now, what does he mean for the Lord's sake? Because this authority, as it's exercised, it's for the Lord's sake. In other words, it's for the Lord. But what does that mean? See, in one sense, we could say, well, it means don't embarrass Jesus. Right? Don't, don't bring shame to the name of Christ. But, but that's not what it means. It means something actually more fundamental than that. Best way I could explain it is this. My wife and I, and those of you that have children know this, every now and then you get those magical people known as babysitters. You know, you want to go out, you want to spend a nice night together. You get these wonderful people known as babysitters. You know, babysitters are heroes in my opinion. You know, they give parents a night off. 
We can go and do certain things. You know, I love babysitting. Hands up if you babysit. God bless you. Keep doing what you're doing. And see me afterwards, right? <laughs> I love babysitting. Every time we get a babysitter, we do what I like to call a transfer of authority. We bring the babysitter in, and we bring our children in, and we look at our children and say, look, here are, the, here are your babysitters for the night. You all need to do what your babysitter tells you to do. Because we give her or him our authority to exercise in our absence. Right? You all know what I'm talking about. Now, in that scenario, I want you to see that the babysitter doesn't have any power beyond what we've given them. And I also want you to see that the babysitter is necessary if you want a house to come back to. <laughs> right? Everybody knows you don't leave little children in the house unattended. You won't have a house by the time you come back. So the babysitter is important. And they have authority because you've given them authority. And ultimately, your children obeys the babysitter because they understand it's your authority that's behind the babysitter. And they will have to answer to you if they make the babysitter's life miserable. Right? In fact, do you understand? That's what submission is. The word submission means this. It means to take your desire, your will, and put it underneath the desire and will of someone else. Right? So in that scenario, my children, if they have, if they have this overburdened desire to disrespect their babysitter, they understand that they have to obey me. They will have to answer to me because I have given my authority to that babysitter. Everybody tracking me? That's exactly what Peter is saying here. Please don't miss that. Peter is saying that every single human institution was ordained by a holy God. Notice it didn't say whether or not you liked the human institution. It didn't say whether or not you voted for the human institution. It didn't say whether or not you approve of the human institution. It said that that human institution was given by God, instituted by God. How many of you believe in sovereignty? You believe in sovereignty of God? Then don't complain about your leaders. And that's not even radical. That's just what the Bible says. Like I'm, like, I'm not saying anything that's super controversial, right? No. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, Peter has it here, you will put your will and your desire below that of God and submit to your human authority. If you look at every passage in Scripture that talks about um, Christians submitting to governments, you know, Romans 13, this passage. You know, there's a passage in Titus. There's a passage in Hebrews. You go on and on and on. If you look at all of those passages, you know there's a few things you won't find. You won't find them talking about what kind of government. You know, it could be democratic. 
could probably be socialistic. It could probably be dictators. It doesn't say. Notice also, it doesn't say, again, whether you like the authority. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that we often choose babysitters who our children like, but that's irrelevant, right? Now, hear, hear me, because this gets to the heart of the biblical text. If you believe that God is sovereign, if you are in relationship with God, if you understand God's holy and wise purposes in the world, then it doesn't matter who God puts over you as his authority, you are called to respect and honor that authority, not just with your actions, but with your words. Again, this isn't radical. It seems radical because of the times that we live in, but this is just ba basic biblical theology, right? This is what God is calling us to. And we don't do it because our leaders are awesome. We don't do it because we approve of our leaders. We do it because we understand that we are under submission to who? God. And that God himself has ordained this for our good. Writing in the 17th century was a group of theologians who um, put together a document known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And many of you probably have known about it or read it. But in chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and by the way, the 17th century was a turbulent time. I mean, you, you think our time is bad? <laughs> you need to go back and read documents of the 17th century. I mean, there was violent insurrection. There was murders of government, right? There's a decentralization of authority. And yet these men are writing a document in this highly charged political arena. And they said that Christians, because they understand what it means to be submissive to God and therefore their authority of government, he said that, look, they, they said that, look, Christians, because they understand that God has ordained government, are in the best possible position to not only be good citizens, but actually be a benefit in society. They go on and say that Christians obey their government because they understand that it maintains order. That Christians obey laws because they understand that's their, uh, that's their responsibility. That Christians pray for their government constantly because they want to seek the peace of their government. They say that Christians um, participate in the governmental process because they understand the impact their influence has, right? They're writing this in the 17th century. You go back even further, probably the 5th century, you get Augustine. In fact, this is Augustine's point in the city of God. The, the people during the fall of Rome, the Roman authorities blamed Christians for the collapse of Rome. Because they said, you know, these Christians, they don't worship all these other gods. They don't follow everybody else, uh, all, follow all the gods like everybody else does. And Augustine says, no, 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 you don't understand. Christians, because they love God and they understand the sovereignty of God and they understand what it means to be in submission to God, that they are the most beneficial in society. Um, look at verse number 15. Because this is one of the points that Augustine makes. He didn't reference this, but this is one of the points he makes. Because, he understand, because Christians understand the will of God, 
they do good in spite of who is in power. Notice what Peter says here. For this is the will of God. What is the will of God? That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance and foolish people. Because Christians understand that doing good is the will of God, regardless of who's in power. They pursue that as a good. Augustine goes on to say that Christian flourishing, Christians should flourish under any authority. Because they understand that behind every authority is the living God. That Christians flourish under every type of authority. Because we understand that behind every type of authority is the living God. Over and over again in scripture and in the history of the church. Think of Daniel. Think of the influence that Daniel had within the pagan culture and pagan government. Because he understood what it means to be in submission. And by the way, just by way of recap, what is the mission that we subject ourselves under that from God? Peter says it here in verse two, in chapter two and verse nine. That we have been made a holy people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possessions. Why? That, w- that you may proclaim the excellence of excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light because that is because that is the ultimate mission of the church we submit to whatever rulers or authorities that God has placed over us now some of you are sitting there and it's like pastor Dennis that's hard that's hard do you turn on the news yeah I do probably too much I've actually stopped watching so much news because I like being happy you know, I just, just got to put that out there. I like, I, I fight for my joy, so I don't watch the news so much, right? Now, how do we do that? Well, he actually tells us, if you drop down to verse number 16, he says, by being servants of God. And let me pause here and say this. This, see, this is it. This is how you do it. By being servants of God. By adopting the mindset of a servant. Do you realize that the mindset of a servant is fundamental to what it means to submit? Right? Jesus himself said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow after me. That's a call to being a servant. Not of man, by the way, but a servant of God. Think of how the mindset of a servant absolutely changes who you are. Uh, let me give you this example. Recently, me and my family started watching the Marvel like movies. I know we're like ten years behind. But you got to start somewhere. And I've I've noticed something in Marvel movies, right? And, and it really came out when I watched Thor. And at the beginning of Thor, Thor is this big, strong man, you know, this cavalier guy, this this hero, right? And he's getting into all kinds of trouble. Why? Right? Because he's brash and he wants to take on the world and, and nobody could defeat Thor. And his father says, you know what, Thor, you're reckless. And I got to teach you a lesson. So he sends him to Earth. And I'm sorry if I'm ruining the movie, but this point's important. Right? You could still watch it and be fine. So, so he goes to Earth and what happens? Thor loses all of his power and he can't lift his hammer. And the whole movie is about what? 
The whole movie is about Thor learning how to be a servant. Learning how to give up his power and his desires and submit to the will of others. That's, that's what the whole movie is about. All, in fact, all of the Marvel movies are about that to some degree or another. Now, how does Thor get back his power? How does he get the hammer back? When he lives this sacrificial life of a servant willing to die on behalf of others. That's when he gets his power back. That's when he gets the hammer back. But let me say this. Marvel did not create that theme. And that's not a theme just for superheroes. That's a theme that's embedded in the teaching of Scripture. Listen to this. Paul says this in Philippians chapter, seven, verse number, uh, chapter 2, verse number 7. Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a what? Servant. He became a servant. And it's through becoming a servant and adopting the mindset of a servant, he was able to do what nobody else in the history of the world could do. Live a perfect life and die for our sins. Because he understood the mindset of a servant. Now, what is the mindset of a servant? Well, look in verse number 17. Honor, fear here, meaning awe, and then love. Those are the mindsets of a servant. And if you look at it, these three virtues is the transcendent virtue in almost every culture you go in. If you, any culture, whether it's Western culture, whether it's Eastern culture, doesn't matter where you go, these three virtues will be at the top of the list. Love, awe, and honor. But that's what it means to be a servant. That's what it means to be a child of God. And then, then, Peter tells us why this servant mindset is so important. Look at verse number 18 through 20. Peter says this. He says that there are times as a servant, not a servant of man, but a servant of God, there are times when you find yourself in good situations where you have a good, uh, someone who's good above you, someone who does all the right things, but then there are times when you find yourself under people who are unjust and they do unjust things. Now it's easy, it's super easy. I've, I've had both bosses, by the way. I've had bosses that I respect, and I honor, and they're good, then I had some who were awful. And you know what I found? It's much better for me to work and do well <laughs> underneath the boss that I respect, and it's a good person, but it's so hard to do it under a boss that you do not respect. And that's unjust. And that's what Peter is saying here. You will often find, and the people that Peter is writing to, they find themselves underneath uh, a, a, a leader, underneath uh, a, a master that is fundamentally unjust and that punishes them for unjust things. And Peter says, what sustains us in that time? The mindset of a servant. Because a servant is more concerned about what the Lord wants them to do in a situation that even at times their own right. And by the way, think of how you stand out if you adopt a mindset of a servant, a student. There are a lot of students in here. Think of how you stand out when you endure suffering underneath a teacher who's hostile to your faith. Or think of how you stand out when you endure 
under a teacher who doesn't treat you as fairly as you think you should. Those of you that work, think of how you stand out when you're still performing well underneath a boss who's against you. See? Peter is saying that when we as Christians do what God calls us to do, we stand out. Now, some of you are sitting down there thinking, well, Pastor Dennis, this, this sort of sounds like you want us to be sheep. Do we, do we never get to speak out? Do we never get to stand up for ourselves? Of course you do. In fact, being a servant of God, when you understand what servanthood means, it puts you in a place to actually see injustices and rightly stand up. Remember, the same Peter that wrote this text stood up after he preached the word of God and was beaten for it and enslaved for it. And he came out and they said, Peter, don't you preach anymore. And Peter, Peter says, well, I don't know if I should preach or not, but I know this. If God tells me to preach again, I'm going to preach again. And ain't nothing you can do about it. Does that sound like being a sheep to you? Of course not. Jesus himself in Matthew 23, verse 1. Look it up sometimes. One of the most profound texts, uh, again, on this subject. Jesus told all the people that were around him. He said, look, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Whatever they tell you to do, you make sure you do. But do not do after their works because they say and do not. What is he saying there? He's saying that, hey, if, if they tell you to do something that's just and right, you do it, but don't follow their hypocritical works. You're not bound to do that because ultimately you're a servant of God. No, beloved, this doesn't make us sheep. This doesn't make us weak. In fact, Peter goes on to say, this makes us Christ-like. Again, look at verse number 20. He says, what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, verse number 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Again, this is what Christ did his entire life. And he did it with strength and he did it with weakness, uh, in, in meekness. And this is what we, as God's people, call, are called to do. Now, what is the big takeaway here? Well, the big, the big takeaway is simply this. If we want to follow Christ, if we want to be seen as followers of Christ, we have to submit ourselves to one another. Whether that's the governing authority, husband and wife, uh, children and parents, Master and slave, however you want to say that, right? You have to submit yourself to one another. And beloved, this is heavenly thinking. This is, hev this is what it is to be heavenly minded. But it's when we are heavenly minded, we have a vision for who Jesus is and our calling is, that we could be the most good in the world. I I'll end with this. C.S. Lewis, writing in Mere Christianity, he made this comment. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians begin the most for the present world are just the ones that thought the most of the next. What C.S. Lewis is saying here is that for Christians who 
change the world. For Christians who did who began the most in this world, who had the most influence, who had the most good, were people who understood the heavenly realities and lived it out in their context. He goes on to say, the apostles themselves who set on foot in the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men um, who built up the Middle Ages, the evangelical, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on the earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. When we read a text like 1 Peter 2, 13, down to verse 25, what are we being drawn to? We're being drawn to heavenly reminders of our need primarily to submit to God, and then he will exalt us in due time. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. The call to submission is one that requires us to remember who we ultimately submit to. And the call to submission is also a sweet reminder that we need to adopt the mindset of a servant. Lord, we are rebels at heart. Help us to learn to die to self so that we might live to you. Father, we're, we're so much more freer as a people. We're so much more um, blessed as a people when we learn to lay aside our mission for ultimately your mission, which is to proclaim the excellence of him, Jesus Christ, who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.